This is The Guardian. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Science Weekly is supported by Better help. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash scienceweekly today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash scienceweekly. Outcome of the first global stock take contained in document FCCC/PA/L.17. Hearing no objection, it is so decided. <laughs> Beneath all the jargon, a landmark climate deal was announced in Dubai today and COP28 President Sultan al-Jabba was keen to sell it as a huge success. Over the last two weeks, we have worked very hard to secure a better future for our people and our planet. It is a plan that is led by the science. But for many, including the small island states whose entire way of life is at risk, the deal doesn't go anywhere near far enough. We have made an incremental advancement over business as usual when what we really needed is an exponential step change in our actions and support. So as COP28 wraps up, we're asking what happened? And will this new deal actually help us stay within the crucial limit of 1.5 degrees of global heating? I'm The Guardian Science Editor, Ian Sample, and this is Science Weekly. Damien Carrington, you're an environment editor at The Guardian, and you were at the first week of COP and since have been scrutinising proceedings from a distance. 
Earlier today, a deal agreed by 200 countries was announced, and it felt as if it all happened very quickly. How was it managed? Yeah, it was kind of remarkable because um, usually these uh, cops are a very intense, very drawn out, very sleep deprived, very caffeine fueled event. But um, what happened was that in the early hours of the morning, what turned out to be the final text was uh, pushed out. Sultan Al Jabba, who's the uh, president of COP from the UAE, also the boss of an oil company, gaveled it through pretty quickly in the morning. There was a slight hiccup in that the AOSIS, which is the uh, alliance of small island states, weren't actually in the room to raise their objections uh, when it happened. So that caused a bit of a fuss. I thank you, Mr. President. We didn't want to interrupt the um, standing ovation when we came into the room, but we are a little confused about what happened. It seems that you just gaveled the decisions and the small island developing states were not in the room. But it did go through remarkably smoothly, or at least quickly in the end. So I think, you know, as ever with these cops, one person said that uh, cops always fail, they just fail better as time goes by. And, And there was sort of a feeling of that. There was definitely some progress made. Was it enough? Absolutely not. Were the developing countries happy with it? Absolutely not. And what exactly is the text? What is this deal? So COPs are complicated, but the most important thing at this COP in Dubai was what they called the global stock take. So what happened over the last couple of years is there'd been this huge exercise in working out um, where the world was on climate change, answer very, very far behind where we need to be. And so this was the response to the global stock take. And that was the decision text, as they call it, which was attracting all the attention, particularly in relation to fossil fuels. So what would you say are the key takeaways from the deal? The summary of it is that it is historic and that it is a tragedy that it is historic. And so what I mean by that is that um, it's historic in that uh, it's the first time fossil fuels have been mentioned in terms of transitioning away, which is the language they ended up with. That might seem ridiculous to many listeners that, uh, you know, 30 years of climate summits, 30 years of very clear climate science, and we've only now got to the point where we can name the root cause of the problem in the main international negotiating forum. But that's a testament to the power and uh, influence of the, the fossil fuel industry, and in particular, the petro states. So that was really important, though, that uh, it's the first time they've said that there has to be a transition away from fossil fuels. It's not as strong as phase out, which 130 countries wanted. But there were lots of other things which I'll briefly bullet point. Um, so an agreement to triple renewable energy. There was an important movement on so-called loss and damage fund. This is uh, money to help countries recover and repair their infrastructure after climate impacts, which are escalating and becoming ever more intense and more frequent. There was some movement on methane, which is a very powerful greenhouse gas but that didn't really make it into the final text in a strong way, which was uh, a bit disappointing. In terms of the sort of negative takeaways, money. Without money, all the talk of climate action is just talk. And certainly there was not enough movement in, in the provision of finance People in Dubai were talking about having to move from billions to trillions. And it was a similar story on adaptation, which is preparing for the impacts of climate change. They've been talking about a so-called global goal on adaptation for, for a number of years, but it didn't really make a lot of progress. You were saying how kind of staggering it is that it's taken getting on for 30 years to even get a mention of fossil fuels into the into the COP text. But this mention does sound like a pretty big deal for a process that involves so many countries that 
economically depend on on fossil fuels right now. How big a step is it? It's a big step. The UN climate process runs by consensus. And uh, as it happens, uh, way back 30 years ago, when it was being set up, Saudi Arabia, uh, which of course is the best known petro state, was very instrumental in ensuring that it remained a consensus-based process, unlike other UN forums where voting is more common. And so, of course, the consensus basis does tend to lead you towards the lowest common denominator. And that's why I think COPs have, have tended to sort of lag behind where we need to be. That's not to say that COPs aren't important because the lack of any real alternative is obvious. It's worth saying that at the time of the Paris Agreement, which was a COP in 2015, we were headed for something like four degrees of global heating, which is Armageddon territory. Whereas today we're looking at just a bit under three. That's still extremely damaging and, and entails a whole world of human suffering. But um, you know, these COPs do make progress, just uh, much slower than we would really want. Why is it, do you think, that these petrostates, a lot of those countries that really have fought against any involvement of any mention of fossil fuels in these COP uh, documents, why is it that they signed and they agreed? I mean, this, this is a 200-nation uh, signature document now. Yeah, it's interesting. It's about pressure and it's about human pressure and that's one of the reasons it's important to have these things in person the listeners can try and picture in their mind these plenary halls which i've been in where you've got every country in the world represented and in this process if you really want to stick your heels in you're gonna to have to stand up in front of everybody and kind of make the arguments which people maybe don't have much truck with in the example of the petro states it's that carbon capture and storage can solve all the problems which it can't or that you need fossil fuels for development and the uh, reduction of poverty, which you don't, you know, they'd have to stand up there and brazen it out. And sometimes, you know, that's happened in the past. On this occasion, they didn't do it. That was partly to do with preparation by the, the presidency. You know, they, they do loads and loads of uh, shuttle diplomacy. They stay up all night for days on end, talking to everyone, trying to get everybody on the on the same page. There's 130 countries who wanted a phase out. And that represents, you know, the vast majority of people in the world. So, you know, that kind of moral pressure, if you like, I think, uh, came to bear. Isn't it the case also, though, that the wording is such that countries can interpret this pretty much in any way they like? They can do next to nothing, very negligible efforts on transitioning away from fossil fuels, and it still count. So they can sort of have the wording, but they can carry on living in the same way as, as they are now. So yeah, the uh, representative of the small island states who spoke immediately after the agreement was done, um, a woman from Samoa, talked about there being a litany of loopholes uh, in this uh, decision. And, and, and there certainly is. The worst of it, I actually even think it's, it's almost like a poison pill, is a um, statement saying that uh, so-called transition fuels have a rule to play. Now, that's code for gas. You know, the fossil fuel people have been for years trying to talk about gas as a bridge fuel or a transition fuel because it's less polluting than coal. But we're way past that moment. We've already got too much uh, CO2 in the atmosphere to think about gas as a transition fuel. In terms of what uh, countries can and can't do, these uh, decisions, these texts from COPs don't dictate what countries can and can't do. They're not sort of legally binding or regulatory in that sense. What they're intended to do is is send a strong signal to the world at large that the fossil fuel era is over and hopefully shift investments in that way. The great flows of financial capital around the world are getting put into green investments rather than black ones. But do those small island states actually see this as a failure or are they happy now to sign up to it, even though, as with any sort of consensus process, they're not happy with every aspect of it? 
No, I think it's about taking what you can get, to be honest. Seven-eighths of the world's population were demanding a loss and damage fund at previous COPs and the great clunking fists of you know, the US, the EU, China just said no because they have that kind of diplomatic and, and, and economic power in terms of the steps forward that have been made, the naming and shaming, if you like, of uh, fossil fuels in this document. They were happy to take that, but they still feel extremely concerned. And, and some scientists I was talking to uh, not long after the decision as well were pretty clear that this decision doesn't put us on track for one and a half. We've got a long way to go. And that one and a half degrees threshold is you know, difference between survival and, uh, and not for a lot of these states. Damien, you've obviously reported on the climate crisis for a good number of years. What do you make of the deal? It's a step forward. And as I said at the start, I think it's a tragedy that this counts as a step forward. We're so far behind where we need to be in terms of action on climate change. We are moving in the right direction, but yeah, we need to be running, not walking. So for better or worse, we have this deal now. What happens next? Yeah, good question. So um, it was decided in Dubai where the next COP was going to be. That was um, a whole diplomatic drama in its own right, because the next COP was due to be held in the Eastern European region. And that, of course, is the uh, site of the uh, Russia's war in Ukraine. So Russia had vetoed any Eastern European countries that were in the European Union. Armenia and Azerbaijan were vetoing each other because of their tensions. But actually it resolved and Armenia is part of the kind of peace talks there back to Azerbaijan. So the next COP in 2024 is going to be in Baku, uh, another petro state with a heavy Russian influence. So that will be another strange uh, setting for a COP. Uh, And then the year after it's going to be in Brazil. And that is important because in 2025, that's the next time all the countries are obligated by the Paris Agreement to come back with their pledges on climate action, the so-called nationally determined contributions. And that's where we really need to see another big ratchet up in terms of um, emissions cuts. I mean, it's always worth bearing in mind the context here. So again, during COP, we found out that uh, 2023 is going to be another record year for greenhouse gas emissions the highest ever recorded. In order to stay on track for one and a half degrees, we need to cut emissions by 43% by 2030, which is, you know, six years away, uh, and we're going in the wrong direction. So that that gives you a sense of the scale of the challenge. Damien, I know COP's always a really intense meeting, so I hope you've recovered, and uh, just huge thanks for coming on and taking us through all this. Thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. My thanks to Damien Carrington. You can follow reporting from Damien and the rest of the fantastic environment team at theguardian.com. And before you go, The Guardian and Observer have launched our annual charity appeal. We're partnering with the Refugee Council, Refugees at Home and NACOM, which means that anything you give will go to helping refugees and asylum seekers rebuild their lives in safety by providing practical support and vital accommodation. If you can, please donate now at theguardian.com forward slash donate. That's theguardian.com forward slash donate. And you can also find a link to that on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. And that's it for today. This episode was produced by Josh and Chana and Madeline Finley. It was sound designed by Mal Lissetto. The executive producer is Ellie Bury. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.